Hi, and welcome to an Our Favorite Movies edition of Filmography Club. I'm Jason Cavanis. When we started this show, the idea was to look at the work of one particular filmmaker per season and to talk to folks who know their movies. This remains unchanged, but obviously 2020 continues to be a chaotic year, so adjustments have to be made. I originally intended to create a parallel series where we could occasionally step outside of the confines of the work of that particular season's subject and focus on other movies. Now, the guests don't need to be quote unquote movie people. They could be anyone because everybody has a favorite movie. So for now, let's step away from our usual format and mix things up a little bit. My guest today is Ted Ringeisen, a Los Angeles-based filmmaker and cinematographer. We're old buddies and we keep in touch primarily through text, so it was nice to actually sit down with him and have a conversation. As you've no doubt noticed, the audio quality is different from what it usually is. That's because the quarantine has prevented us from using the studio. So I'm doing this at home. I'm doing the best I can here, folks. And uh, me and my guest today, we have to speak via Zoom. So while the audio quality isn't exactly the best, it's what we've got. We're doing our best. All right, so today we're talking about Jaws. I reached out to my buddy, Ted. Hey, Ted, good to see you, man. Jason, good to see you, too. So if you had to pick a favorite movie, you're going with Jaws? Gun to my head, if anyone's like, because obviously whenever I talk to anybody, I'm constantly talking about movies. Um, and Not constantly, but you, you get it. But anyone's like, what's your favorite movie? I'm always like, Jaws. Uh, and I feel like that's probably the answer for a lot of people who are into movies. Not just because it's it's an easy choice, but when you watch the movie, you find out why that's so many people's um, favorite movie. When you told me your favorite movie was Jaws, I thought, perfect. And I haven't watched it in, it's been decades. I, I haven't really? seen this movie in over decades. It's it's so a part of our shared culture. It's so ingrained. I mean, I believe it's kind of considered to be the first blockbuster. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I it, mean, it, it changed the game. Star Wars, I think it was the highest grossing. It was the highest time. grossing movie of all time. I've got the numbers yeah. right here in front of me. The movie cost uh, nine million to make, and the box office wow. it raked in four hundred seventy point <laughs> seven million dollars. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Well, nine, this is on a nine million dollar budget. Sure, and it's Spielberg is Spielberg for a reason, and this is a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then he followed it up with Close Encounters, I think. Like right after. Close Encounters. He almost I read today just on the Wikipedia page that Jaws two, of course, diminishing returns on these Jaws movies. Right. They fired the first director just a week or two into shooting, and they came this close to getting Spielberg back, but he was already wrapped up in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I, I just watched the fourth one last night with my roommate. We watched it with the, I don't know if you listened to the film crypt. It's the two directors. It's the one director from like the hatchet series and another guy that did like Everly and mayhem. I can't remember their names, but they're buddies. And they did a commentary track, kind of like what red letter media does with movies. Right. And they did it on jaws, the revenge. So we watched jaws, the revenge. And that's a movie I remember watching. I watched, all of the jaws a lot when i was a kid like i i love the first one i remember liking the second one but it's essentially just like a slasher movie with the shark and like the teenage kids on the boat the boats uh like it's not bad i i remember there's like pretty good performances in there but they're also boring like the like jaws of revenge i mean we're watching it with the commentary track so we don't have any sound on the tv i don't know how the fuck i like i paid attention 
And that movie kept me engaged when I was 10 because it is so boring. I mean, the shark is in it like five times and it's not like in the first movie, like you do, you only see the shark a few times, but it's always like a threat, you know, because of the barrels. But Jaws of Revenge, it's this, it's like watching a Lifetime Movie Network movie where it's like family drama. And it's just, I don't know. There's interesting facts about that. Like from start to finish, the movie took nine months and it started shooting without a completed script and they had a release date. So the fact that that movie even got made as competently as it, as it is, even though there's some weird editing and horrible uh, other shit as well. But <laughs> like the fact that that movie got made without a script from conception to release date in nine months is, is kind of impressive, but the movie speaks that, for itself, I suppose. <laughs> and there's actually some nice camera work in a couple of scenes. I was like, oh, wow, that doesn't look too bad. <laughs> I mean, it is impressive that nine months after them just putting pen to paper yeah. or even starting it, the thing was in theaters. That is impressive, it's, but this is a movie that's widely considered to be among the worst oh, films it, it's, it's ever made. It's not good, but I have definitely seen movies that I would say are way worse. I mean, and that, that did well. You know, and you're like, ooh, really? Or, like, or rather a wide release movie. One of the one of the worst wide releases yeah, of all time. I, I would say so, yeah. I'm not defending yeah. Jaws of Revenge. So I'm so glad that you mentioned Jaws. Because again, I hadn't seen the movie in decades, so I got to watch it with pretty much fresh eyes. I mean, there, there's plenty of quotes. There's all sorts of stuff and images from the film that have just kind of made their way into our cultural DNA. Mm-hmm. So of course, I'm familiar with all of that. But it was great to just sit down and watch the whole thing for the first time since, uh, really, since I've been an adult. Wow. A fantastic movie. It really is. Great movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason it made that much money. And watching some of the behind the scenes stuff, it looked so difficult yeah. to make. Yeah. Just to go out there on the, oh my God, and just Spielberg out on these boats with the crew. And he's talking about how difficult it is because you, you get your shot framed up. And then by the time everything's in place and you're ready to roll, Boat goes or by. the boats have drifted apart or closer together. And so... Yeah, the tide right. was taken. So the whole shoot had to be very loose, just kind of like, yeah. don't get married to that idea of that one shot being framed up exactly that way. Let's just kind of do it on the fly. Right. Let's just make it look as good as we can on the yeah. fly. Yeah, I think even what's the the DP's name on that, I think is Bill it's Butler. Bill Butler. I could be wrong, but I, I, um, because, yeah, Spielberg wanted to, and, you know, especially in like his earlier movies, you you can notice that he does a lot of those like dolly in dolly out. And those like those, um, what do they call them? Like the Spielberg oneers where it'll start in one setup and then he'll follow a character and then it'll be a completely different setup. And I remember reading, or maybe it might've been like on a DVD extra or something. I, I would say commentary, but I don't think Spielberg does. Yeah, there's not one for Jaws. Movies. I think I remember reading somewhere that he said that it, he wants the movies to kind of stand on their own merit and that, by him breaking it down and talking to them, it sort of ruins the mystique of them. Okay. Which, I mean, sure. that sounds cool. But yeah, so he had to, because he had all these ideas, especially shooting on the boat of how he wanted to sort of like set up dolly tracks and do all these like elaborate sort of one takes, which there are quite a bit in the movie, but they're not, ne- there's not necessarily a lot of movement. But then he had to just adapt. Like I think Bill Butler just built this like wooden rig around the camera to where it was heavier, so it wouldn't look very handheld. They could move the camera freely and then just like burn through setups because they yeah. weren't getting any. <laughs> like they were, I, they were just like constantly uh, 
trying to figure out like what else they could shoot because nothing was everything was always yeah the most wrong. Spielbergian stuff I saw in the movie as far as like shots go it's all the stuff on land the stuff with them in the, yeah, the, the family in the house talking or just out on the beach or in the streets yeah. with the mayor there were lots of those wonders that his wonders yeah. aren't like PTAs they, they don't tend to be really show-offy they don't go on for like no. six minutes at a time they, they, I, they tend to be a minute and a half and he, he sets up what would be another director would use two or three different shots with blocking he just yeah. puts that all into one take and uh, it, it's yeah it's immersive and it, like i think the longest one i could be wrong but like there's the one on the um the boat platform when chief brody is taking it over to the boy scouts or the lifeguard scouts or whatever that are swimming in the water that's all pretty much one take i think there's one cut there when he says like you yell barracuda everybody says huh what you know like that like that's all one take and then when um cooper is explaining to mayor vaughn the size of the tooth that he pulled out of the boat. And then there's that vandalized billboard with the girls screaming. Like that's all one take. And I think there's one cut. It's like the reverse angle of Mayor Vaughn getting into his car and driving away. So that's like, it's like two setups, but really like the one take, it's like four different setups. Like the camera like booms up and booms down and Dolly's right or something like that. And then comes down to like a low angle. And it's great because the performance, that's the other thing too, is like the, all the acting in this movie is everybody's good in it. All the locals that you can tell were probably really just there on Martha's Vineyard. Like they're all just funny. It's great. Quint is definitely uh, probably my favorite movie character of all time besides like Ripley and like uh, Dr. Schultz from Django Unchained. Like Quint is just like, it's just like one of those movie characters and, and the performance by Robert Shaw too is he just, he, you cannot take your eyes off. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned screen. Quint. I was about to bring him up too because when you said that all the acting just felt really natural, he's the one character in that movie that could have become a cartoon character. He's so close yeah, to being an, a salty old pirate, but he does still feel grounded. He still feels real. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's interesting too because I remember reading, I think this would have been really good. I mean, I'm glad we got what we got, but Lee Marvin was originally going to be, was uh, Spielberg was interested in Lee Marvin playing Quint. And I'm like, wow, mm. that would have been, that would have been kind of interesting actually. And then I think he also wanted, who was it? Moby Dick, Gregory Peck. Oh, wow. I think he wanted Gregory Peck as, um, because in the book, I believe that Quint dies very Ahab, like tangled up in the ropes of, of the barrels on the shark and drowns. Much like uh, Ahab does, like I think he gets trapped to the side of Moby mm -hmm. Dick. But I mean, I'm glad we got Robert Shaw because he is Quint. You know, <laughs> it's just he's just an incredible in it. A fantastic performances all the way through. Even the the little kids. Yeah, the kids are great. So this was the number one top grossing film of all time from 1975 for a couple of years. Then we get into Star Wars territory, high concept kind of cheap to make and then you yeah. put it out right at the beginning of summer and dump tons of money into advertising yeah. on TV. The merchandising for this thing was crazy. I remember as a little kid, Jaws is older than I am, but just barely. So I grew up in that cultural wake pardon that pun, of, yeah. of this movie. And I remember just growing up seeing like stickers on stuff and lunch boxes and shit. Just, yeah. this is a movie about a man-eating shark, for God's sakes. Yeah. And they marketed <laughs> yeah. it like it was Star Wars. It's also kind of like a pirate movie, too. Yeah, yeah, pirate movie. Sort of a slasher. Maybe not as much like you mentioned as, as, as part yeah. two. It's like an intelligently... It's funny, because it is a slasher movie, and it's like the man versus nature thing. And... I mean, just rewatching it, it's funny because you said you hadn't watched it in decades. It's probably like a once a year movie for me. Not 
two days before you had mentioned it, I had watched it like three times in one week because I, it was like, it came up to be time. It was like, Oh, this is the once a, this is the day, the once a year that I'm going to watch this movie. And then I watched it and then my roommate came home and he was like, Oh, I haven't seen this in forever. And I was like pretty much towards the end of the movie. And then the next day I came home and he was watching it. So of course I just sat down and just like watched it. And then a friend of mine had never seen it before. And I was like, you've got it. I was like, wow, dude, like you've never seen Jaws before. I was like, okay, well we got it. And he had a big projector and I was like, we have to watch it. And he loved it. But he was just talking. He's like, it's so straightforward. And it's like, yeah, like there's nothing, there's no like, it's not convoluted at all. And yeah, very tight script. Everybody has an arc. Yeah, it's just such a tight, like the pacing of it is just, it's so good. And it's one of those movies that it's like, it all starts on land and then they have to start hunting the shark. And then the movie like starts again when they're on the water. Oh my God. Yeah. Like all that stuff was so good. And now it's getting even better. You know, like it's so rare that movies get better in the third act. And Jaws just like continues to get better as the movie goes on. Like, especially when it's, when it's Brody Hooper and Quint just love all it. in that I love boat. that dynamic. I mean, it really is. Just, yeah. Like they all just have like great chemistry and it, it's funny. Like there's a lot of comedy mixed in there too. It's it's just so. I was surprised at how much I laughed at the movie, which is baffling because the one movie I can think of that Spielberg directed, that's just, on its face, a comedy is widely regarded as one of his, it, it, it's one of his biggest failures, 1940, 1941. Yeah, 1941. I yeah. watched it a while. I got that Steven Spielberg box that came out. It had like six or seven movies in it. Yeah. And it's got half of it are his just slam dunks from early in his career, Jaws, E.T., that sort of stuff. And then the other half yeah. is the shit that they just couldn't sell individual Blu-rays for, like 1941, Always. Oh Always. my God, that was, yeah. that's his worst movie. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. talk about his better movie. So the score, two notes. Yeah. Two notes, John Williams. And and, it, and it's iconic. universal. You know? Wonderful. It really is. Yeah. There's there's just some great cues, too. Like the one shot of, I guess it's like really when you see how big the first time and it kind of like bumps under the, the orca, the boat that they're on. And it's just this like overhead. The cameraman is probably in like the crow's nest of the boat. And it's just like all those like harps start playing and it just kind of really emphasizes the size and the, the majesty of, of the shark that they're hunting. It's so good. And then he kind of has those like pirate shanty themes. The like Spanish the, uh, ladies. Farewell yeah. and adieu plays over and over again. Yeah, like it's, it's you know, what, what more can you say about John Williams? He's just such a master of just like knowing when placing music in, in such appropriate places. When the kids prank all the swimmers and everything with the cardboard fin, there's no music. So then you're like, oh, like, is that the shark, isn't it? And then later on when the shark is on the pond then it attacks Michael, then the music starts to kick in to like cue the audience. Yeah, here's like, the real oh, thing. Here's yeah. the threat. And it's certainly one of necessity, I guess, to just like Ridley Scott's Alien, 
not show the creature. But the limitations... Which is a shame because with all the advancements in animatronics and stuff, I mean, like, even in Deep Blue Sea, the CGI in that movie is horrible, but, like, there's a couple of, like, animatronic sharks. You're like, huh, I mean, like, that doesn't look too bad. You know, like, that could... I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's a movie that needs to be remade because what what more can you do with it that wasn't already done perfectly the first time? And that's the other thing about the movie, too. Like, other than, like, people smoking in hospitals, it still feels contemporary. It doesn't feel... It's timeless. Even if you had all the advanced, with like cell phones and stuff, like that would be the only other thing that people would be doing in that movie that they're not already doing in it. It would be like recording things on their phone. Cause like, what could you do against a shark with a cell phone, you know? Right. Like when they're out on the boat there, you know, like they don't need cell phones. Like they would have to. Yeah, it wouldn't change the story in the least bit. Watching it. Yeah, except one of them would be filming. Sure, yeah, there would be a lot of people off to the side watching, you know, filming people getting eaten. Yeah, yeah. 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 Watching the movie, I was amazed at how timeless it is, the story, because again, the the technology wouldn't change much of anything, but also timely in a way, and it's totally unintentional, of course, but you've got the idiot mayor saying, no, 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 it's fine, get out there, go, 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 everything... Completely yeah, ignoring yeah, yeah. what what the experts are saying. But yeah, I mean that, and that's the other thing too. Yes, the shark does look fake, but it's one of those things. It's like you can excuse nowadays if you're completely engrossed in the movie, you can sort of excuse like shitty CGI, you know. And with Jaws, a couple of times, I think the shark genuinely looks terrifying. Like the the shot that's scariest to me is when um the boys are in the pond and the shark bumps that one guy's boat. That's like, you boys okay over there. And then it like bumps, it bumps his boat and he's trying. Um, it's like that overhead shot and he's trying to get back onto the boat and just under the surface, you see the shark come up and like grab his leg and yank him down. Like that doesn't look fake. I mean, I mean, it look, you know that it's fake, but it is so horrifying. The way it's just under the water, just enough to where you can kind of make it out. Oh my God. I mean, the opening scene is really scary too, because you can't see it, but just getting a glimpse of it. And it's like, Oh God, every time that shot happens, I'm like, because I mean, being in the ocean, stranded in the middle of the ocean and eaten by a shark is 100% my worst fear. And it's probably due to Jaws. I mean, I was afraid to take a bath after that movie, (laughs) honestly. There's a lot of great moments too that I think were just kind of caught, like the shooting stars. I know that those were just like, just happened like on on the day those weren't added in after the fact it was the shot when they're all talking about the indianapolis which god that scene that's probably one of my favorite scenes in movie history i mean I, yeah that was wonderful I, I mean it's it's just one guy talking for four minutes however long that scene is and it's it really does wrap up that story in just those three minutes i mean there's a what's that podcast weird history or hardcore history. Dan Carlin. Yeah. And he he go he talks about he did a whole podcast on the Indianapolis and my God, I cannot think of a more nightmarish, hellish on earth situation than than that. I mean, four nights, five days in the middle of the ocean. Oh my God. And and it's such a perfect arc for Quint too, because he says in that scene, like, I'll never put on a life jacket again. And then he has that moment when the boat is sinking where he grabs the life jackets and you're like, uh oh. 
but he only gives one to Hooper and, and Brody. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then he goes out the way that he thought he was going to, uh, when the boat went down, it's always good when Quint goes, like you never really, you never want him to go, you know, and then it happens. Well, yeah, that movie, they, they were rewriting the script as they were shooting. The screenplay is credited to two people. It's uh, Peter Benchley himself. This mm-hmm. movie of course is based on his novel. Yep. And uh, another guy who called Gottlieb, right? Yep. Who's actually the, he's in the movie. He's the news reporter. Hey guys, can we take a picture? Come on guys, take a picture for the paper. That's Carl Gottlieb. And then I think John Milius wrote the Indianapolis speech, hmm. which was which was then added to by Robert Shaw. And you can actually see in that scene, I was reading up on it, that Robert Shaw was so drunk because he was a pretty horrible drunk, I think, or pretty serious drunk. I don't know if he was horrible, but he, uh, you, you can see he was so drunk the first night that they were trying to shoot that scene that he couldn't get through it and then he begged it was either later that night or the next day he begged Spielberg to let him try it again and you can see the two different nights so or at least from what I've observed I'm like oh there he's drunk oh he's not drunk there um so it's when the scene first starts uh Robert Shaw's eyes are like completely glazed over and he looks like really sweaty and they're comparing him and Hooper are comparing the scars and then Brody's like what's that tattoo on your arm and he's like oh that's the USS Indianapolis there you can see and it's in that setup they cut to that setup again one other time during the speech but there you can tell that Robert Shaw or at least I think you can tell that Robert Shaw is like hammered drunk like he's getting the word lines out, but you can see that it's like, and then it cuts to like a medium shot of him and he's a little less sweaty. His eyes aren't glazed over. And that's where like the meat of the story comes. And you're like, oh, that's the other take. And then he cuts back to that one sort of wider shot of him and um, Cooper at the table. I think it's the part when he's like, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks maybe a thousand and like that you're like oh there he's drunk again but the performance is good there so why not use it you know <laughs> yeah it's, pre- it's pretty interesting so yeah this is uh spielberg's what third movie yeah second theatrical release i, I mean duel a- was a tv movie here i think it got a theatrical release yeah, they reshot with a couple scenes extra scenes and then, in, yeah. in europe and then sugarland express yeah. which i've actually never seen all of uh, but I do remember liking it when I was a kid. Yeah, I watched it about a year ago. Is it good? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was fun. It's it's got all the Spielberg stuff except for the white light spilling in from somewhere. He didn't yeah. pick that up until I think Close uh, Encounters. Right? Close Encounters, yeah, I think is. But then it's yeah. man, he always has that blinding white light spilling in through a door or a window yeah. or a portal yeah, or, or something. He, Darius he, Kanji, or not Darius Kanji. Uh, oh, Kaminsky. Yeah, Janusz Kaminsky. Kaminsky, Janusz yeah. Kaminsky yeah. So that's his, that's been his DP ever since Schindler's List. So they all have that very sort of like saturated or desaturated look with like heavy backlight. But yeah, with like E.T. and Close Encounters, like you can see that's sort of the 80s Spielberg aesthetic. But with Jaws, it's very like raw. Like he uses a lot of those wide angles. It doesn't have that sort of like Spielberg sort of like filter over it. You know, like it's just kind of like very straightforward. And if it wasn't, if you didn't know it was a Spielberg movie, you wouldn't go into it being like, oh, this looks like a Spielberg movie. It just looks like a movie from the 70s, really. Yeah. But if, I mean, if you're looking for it, though, some of those early uh, hallmarks are are still there in this movie. Like we said, the long tracking shots or the, 
the the, the oneers with yeah. like three or four different blocking setups in and it. And the uh, the scene when Quint is just sitting in that chair, it's great editing and great tension building. Brody's trying to tie that knot, and then the fishing line starts to get clicked, and then uh, Quint starts to buckle himself in, and it takes so long. Like, it always reminds me of the shot in Jurassic Park when uh, Muldoon sees the raptor and then he starts unloading the gun, clicking mm-hmm. it in. The, the clever girl moment. Like, it takes for, and he just knows how to milk those moments of, uh, and then, you know, clever girl happens. And it's like, the, those two scenes always, I wonder, I always wondered if he had that in his mind when he was doing that, because it just takes its time to like, and every camera move just follows like one thing. and. It's so good. And then right when Quint gets strapped in, that's when Brody ties the knot and then the line gets yanked. Like, it's just brilliant. It's just such good filmmaking, good story. Like, you don't need the sound on to know exactly what the hell is happening. However, you want the sound on because that score, Mm -hmm. those two notes. I think I was touching on this a little bit earlier. I want to go into it a little bit more here. The score does a wonderful job of letting us know when that shark is actually there. The the limitations of the time really didn't allow for us to see the shark that Mm -hmm. much, which I'm glad of. Yeah, The shark, you know, it kind of looks... Fakey. It looks fake, yeah, it but does. it's not it's not garbage. But you have to come up with clever ways to let us know that the shark is there yeah. lurking. And one is that great score by John Williams. Thought another wonderful choice was the barrels. The barrels, yeah. I assume that that's an actual thing that people use. Jaws makes is the sense. only thing, and it makes so much sense. But Jaws is really the only thing that, and I don't know much about shark hunting or whale hunting or anything like that, but I am, would imagine that that would be the method that you would use to, you know, like to track and also exhaust whatever animal it is you're trying to hunt. Right. And I got the impression that it would take a, an animal of extraordinary strength to just to submerge even one of those that's barrels. Ex- yeah. And that's the other thing, too. Like the more barrels they get on it, it's also like a source of information to the audience because Quint keeps saying it can't go down with three barrels. And then it does. And you're like, man, what are they up again? Like, so it's just constantly mounting the tension. And it's also, I think the shark, even though it does look fake, it's convincing because the editing, like they never choose to show too much of it. And that I think is the problem with the other movies is that if they had just cut a frame later or a frame earlier, the shark would be more convincing but obviously you have to up the ante with the sequels and i understand that but the the benefit that the editing lends to the first movie i mean it's just cutting to like splashing and tails and like the shark just comes up and then it cuts it like it always knows when to cut and i think verna fields was the editor on that yeah i think verna fields and she won an academy award for the editing i believe and i think it won too i think it won sound design and, and best editing all right so here we go academy awards for jaws We've got Best Film Editing, Verna Fields. Best Music, Original Dramatic Score, John Williams. Best Sound, Robert L. Hoyt, Roger, what is that, Heeman Jr., Earl Mattery Jr., and R. Carter. Maybe didn't quite sweep or anything, but... Go see it if you haven't seen it. Like, rent it. I, I know that they're all on HBO Max right now, so... If you, if you haven't seen Jaws, and everybody's inside watching TV right now, so, I mean, you might as well throw it on because it's just... It's timeless. It's great. There's great characters. It's it's funny. It's scary. Accidentally it's timely. timely. Yeah, it's timely. Yeah, give it a watch and just take it in because it's it really is one of those like you should see it. It's it's just such a great movie. All right, Ted. Uh, 
thanks so much, man. It's been a blast. Absolutely. Maybe get you back for season two. I would be more than happy to uh, hop back on the podcast for sure. That sounds great, man. Awesome. Take care. You too, man. Take care. And that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank my guest, Ted Ringeisen. You can find Ted on Instagram at dinobear2086. That's D-I-N-O-B-E-A-R-2086. I'd also like to thank Michael Leeds, Will Fox, and Ross Warner. Filmography Club is produced by the always hardworking folks that we own this town in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.